Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Barnard. And I'm Victor Gamow. In this series, we chat with software developers and technology leaders to tackle your biggest API connectivity challenges. Stay tuned to this episode for tools, tactics, strategies that will help you to take your distributed architectures to the next level. Let's begin. And today, I'm especially super excited to welcome Josh Long, a Spring Developer Advocate at VMware, and my friend, Josh, welcome to Concast. Oh, thanks, my friend. I missed you. I'm, I, I was saying yesterday when we were talking about this, I, I just regret we couldn't do this in person like we've done so many times before, you know? Yes, but I'm uh, super excited that uh, technology like cloud and yeah. all this internet of everything can connect us still. And... Uh, we have a great conversation. So yeah, for those of you who don't know you as I do, can you uh, briefly introduce yourself and what you do and what drives you, what's your passions and things like that? Uh, my name is Josh Long. I work on the Spring team. I'm a developer advocate, a Google Kotlin developer ex uh, expert and a uh, Java champion. Uh, and I spend my time trying to help people build better software intended for production in terms of Spring and the Spring ecosystem. And I, I've been doing that in my capacity as the first Spring developer advocate since... Uh, since 2010. Yeah, 2010. I saw your first time, your presentation. You did this presentation in 2011 in New York. It was MongoDB office. And you were talking about the Spring Data Project. I remember that. You were there in New York in the MongoDB Day thing? Yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago. and I That was there. is so wild. That's a decade ago, man. So, and uh, th there was uh, great times and the spring actually went very long way since that time. That was before spring boot I and mean, spring yeah. cloud and all this exactly. stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, so wow. the thing That's exploded uh, and microservices world exploded around what, 2014, 2015? Yeah, I would say around then, yeah. And spring boot was super well positioned uh, to, to tap into that zeitgeist, you know, the, the wave uh, of innovation and excitement around agility and getting to, to getting to production more quickly. And uh, I guess it was kind of like a perfect storm. Like people were looking for tools that uh, allow them to uh, break this monolithic application to build uh, the services. And yeah. the sim similar time, many, many things happened. The, the Heroku released their 12-factor app manifesto, a uh, very yeah. famous one. And uh, the folks at uh, the time, it was Pivotal, right? Uh, it was yeah. already was not a Spring Source. I started working on Spring Boot. Can you um, uh, briefly tell our listeners some of the listeners here are not that familiar with the java ecosystem as we are and like give a give us some rundown like what's why it, why it is exciting and how the the spring actually change uh the way how the people develop apps in in the java world you know it, it's very funny um well first of all you're you're right about that so we there's spring source then 2009 vmware bought spring source then uh, in 2013 spring and tomcat and rabbitmq and cloud foundry and uh, Gemfire and uh, Redis and all these sort of developer-facing bits that were at VMware. We all we took all that stuff, Greenplum. We took all that stuff and like turned it into a new company called Pivotal. And I was part of that, you know, first wave of new Pivotal. I was there on day zero, right? The very first day we opened our doors at Pivotal. I was an employee, so basically I had the same job, same team, same everything. Just the name on the paycheck changed, you know. And uh, we we just we created Pivotal and. Uh, that's when we created Spring Boot and when Cloud Foundry got big as well, right? Because of, uh, again, owing a huge debt of gratitude to uh, the Heroku uh, team who inspired, you know, fleets of, of uh, innovation, waves of innovation that, would, that still ripple today. It's, it's funny you mentioned the, um, 
you know, people who may not know, because again, you're, you're right. That's 2013, right? We're, we're closer to a decade since yeah. Spring Boot's first 0.4 public release, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was middle of 2013. So that, that, you know, that's a year and a half from now, basically. It'll be a decade. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Spring has been lucky, right? Spring, as you know, and as maybe some others do, Spring is one of those very few projects that has been white hot popular two different times in its life, right? Like imagine... Yeah. Imagine if Struts, you know, from 2000 came back today and it was like the most popular thing again. You know, that's what happened with Spring. Spring came out, the first lines of code, you know, you can see code in Spring from like 2000 or 2001. Uh, that was created by a gentleman named Rod Johnson who uh, wrote a book. He wrote a book about it that inspired others. The, op- the code in the book became an open source project uh, that then became Spring. That inspired other people, including Jurgen Haller, who's still with the Spring team, he's still the lead of Spring Framework today. It, it inspired countless other people to hope for a better way to build software, you know? Right. Before that, it was just uh, like a big application servers, like a big, yeah. like basically a representation of this, like a monolithical application that we're trying to fight. And uh, they actually, the Spring kind of paved the way and everyone has followed. Like the yeah. many specifications that happened after emergence of Spring Boot and even Spring itself as a framework uh, were infect- affected by ideas that Spring provided, like lightweight, uh, things that, you know, not super slow, like people thinking still, people still thinking Java is slow. And we'll talk about this, like how oh, this yeah. changed uh, with the uh, recent release of uh, Spring Native. We're going we're gonna to talk about this uh, in, in many details, but I want to try to kind of create this kind of vision. And so people will understand that it's actually, you know, innovation happens and uh, the platform is not stagnating. It's actually evolving. And the microservices and uh, the cloud and the serverless technologies that developers want to be agile, they want to be delivering the features, delivering their stuff uh, to their users. They want to be like fast. They don't want to wait. They don't want to wait until uh, everything will be uh, running or starting up or, or things like that. Right. And things around Kubernetes and things around um, Heroku and Cloud Foundry, the Cloud Foundry like received a lot of inspiration from, from many worlds. And I super fascinated how it is actually evolved into something that, you know, can be very uh, ambiguous, right? So you can run this pretty much like everywhere. Similar, like you can, if you want to run this on top of uh, the Kubernetes, you can you can do that, or like you can use the Cloud Foundry as a foundation to run your Kubernetes and things like right. that. Right. Well, so it's the way around. Today, you would run Cloud Foundry on top of Kubernetes. So we have a uh, now. So twist of fate, right? Uh, TLDR. Pivotal eventually got merged back into VMware after we went public and all that. I think VMware was sort of I don't know what the uh, motivation was, but Basically, it was a to me. It seemed like they're really, really interested in like becoming this developer-first company. It was a very cool thing for them to do. Uh, and so they, the, the teams, uh, the you know, the company of Pivotal and, and Heptio, right? Uh, Heptio was a Kubernetes company, um, and it's because of that, by the way, that we have two of the three founders of Kubernetes working at VMware, and we're all part Heptio and and Pivotal. We're all part of this division called Tanzu. T-A-N-Z-U. So, you you know, we have a Kubernetes distribution, one of the best in the business. We have Tanzu, we have, uh, you know, Spring. And uh, so Cloud Foundry now sits on top of Kubernetes if you wanted to, because Cloud Foundry is like an uh, opinionated approach to building software. It's, it's got guardrails, but if you use those guardrails, it's super fast, right? It's like Heroku uh, in that respect. But still, something needs to manage the infrastructure and nothing is better. Nothing in the world is better than that, than, at that than, uh, than Kubernetes. So, 
yeah, it's a it's an interesting mix. We've got a Kubernetes distribution. We got the we we help we help people build scalable, operationalizable infrastructure, and then we help them build apps that do well in that context. You know, with Spring. So um, the the way how the Spring influenced some of the lighter version of everything uh, from yeah. day one, like we talk about Tomcat was lighter version of this like a gigantic application server, right. like uh, web spheres of the world, and uh, the way how the 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 Spring and the Tomcat and some of the uh, dependency injection that Spring brought up changed the way how the people want to develop apps. Spring Boot changed the yeah. way how they want to develop apps in the modern world. Yeah. They want to have a faster turnaround of the things. Or, you know, they want to, don't want to do like recompiled. So that's why like a Spring uh, toolkit that comes with the Spring Boot allows you to do this. Um, right. You know, you can change the code without mm-hmm. uh, doing restarts or my favorite personal favorite part, integrating with third-party services in a very opinionated way. Things, yeah. uh, Spring Kafka, my, my personal favorite part of uh, Spring projects, I use this a lot and I taught this a lot and yeah. explained people how this stuff worked. Gives some of the opinionated way how to connect to the services plus use the services in the Spring opinionated way. So, Josh, so what is the new and exciting just happened a couple, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I would say, or... It's actually started happening, uh, you know, for a while, and uh, people yeah. were more or less ready. But what a technology um, influence and uh, help to move forward? So, okay, to be fair, just to not to be technical about it, but to be fair, a lot of Spring, you know, the best part about Spring is that we package up good ideas and good patterns into a way that's approachable for the community. So, as much as I love Spring Boot. And I think it's the coolest. Nobody on the Spring Boot team would tell you that Spring Boot created everything by itself, right? Of course not. That's just not the case. So, for example, uh, we drew a lot of inspiration from, for example, Drop Wizard, right? Which had a lot of these great ideas before Spring Boot. We even used Drop Wizard, Drop Wizard metrics in the first version of Spring Boot, the 1.x line. So I think that's what's really great about Spring is it's always been we try and fill in the gaps if they exist, but if there if there's no gaps, then we just use and we just integrate the best of breed uh, ideas and technologies and all that. So you can use Spring and all these other things, and that's what makes Spring so uh, durable is that it works well with these other things, like you just mentioned, the Spring for Apache Kafka project. And by the way, you and I have done talks on um, uh, Spring for Apache Kafka and Spring Cloud Stream uh, for Apache yep. Kafka streams. You know that we've done talks on that kind of stuff, and I've learned a lot from you now. It's actually the, it's it's now to the point where I just look to your videos to learn stuff about uh, Spring and Apache Kafka. So I appreciate that. Now, one <laughs> of the things... I appreciate you saying this. It's, oh. uh, it's really... Uh, I, I humbled. Oh, thank you. So uh, I, I, uh, we, we're all grateful for the work you've done. And uh, I am... Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen people trying to make work of Lightning, you, you mentioned this recently, is um, we've seen people trying to make Java work on GraalVM. Now, GraalVM is an ahead-of-time compiler. It's also a just-in-time compiler, right? So GraalVM is a piece of infrastructure that replaces Hotspot. You know, if you use it just like that, as it was originally intended, what I heard, the story that I heard, maybe this is apocryphal, I don't know. The story that I heard was that uh, at some point they wanted to replace the just-in-time compiler Hotspot, which is built into OpenJDK, you know, the project, the open source project. And that code is apparently a tangle of spaghetti C++ code uh, that is hard to maintain. So they wanted to replace that with something that would be easier to understand and faster and all that. So they created GraalVM, which is an open JDK, which is all, it's exactly the same, except for uh, there's a new 
just-in-time compiler. Instead of Hotspot, it's the Gravium, you know, um, just-in-time compiler. And a just-in-time mm-hmm. compiler is the piece of it's a piece of secret sauce that makes Java so amazing, right? If you've yep. ever run Java in production, you probably know that you can deploy an application, and as it gets more traffic, as certain code paths are executed enough times, they get turned into native architecture-specific uh, binary code, right? You know, win- x86 Windows or x86 Mac or whatever specific binary code. So for certain code paths, you actually get native performance while you're running an interpreted language, right? Um, and actually, that plus the fact that Java has a whole world view of the memory, right? You're not constantly having little bursts of, uh, you know, memory acquisition and destruction because you don't have to do your own garbage collection. Because Java has this whole world view of the memory, it can throw away, it can clean up memory at the right time so that it doesn't cause disruption to the, the work that you're doing. So Java programs can actually be much faster than an equivalent C or C++ program, even a well-written one, just because of the benefits that we get from using this. So my, uh, my impression is we've got this amazing just-in-time compiler, this native uh, machinery. And I think somebody just said, hey, well, if we've got that, wouldn't it be nice if we turned it into a, um, like, what if we just compiled the whole application? Into exactly. A, yeah. Into why a why, why we need to have intermediate code? Why do we need to have a right. Java bytecode? And why we have a, a JVM? If we're so smart with compilers, why we right. cannot just like take the do instead of just in time? Can we have ahead of time? Yeah, exactly. And, and especially today, like the original core conceit of Java, which is amazing, by the way, the original benefit. I remember when I'm sure you remember too. The in the in the uh, in in the 90s when people talked about Java, you could write systems, well, not operating systems, but you could write big infrastructure and, and software that ran across all different operating systems, which is amazing. It is still amazing, right? That wasn't very common. The fact that you could have this nice, scalable, statically typed language that worked on all languages was great because people were developing applets and you didn't know what browser they were going to be using or what operating system. But today, all my cloud infrastructure is Linux in a container, yeah, right? That's exactly. it's almost 99%, right? I, I don't know the number, but it's the very large majority of all infrastructure in production is Linux inside of a container. So really, while I want to run and develop on any operating system of choice, eventually I want to make sure it runs perfectly well in Linux in a container, right? And so right. maybe in specific in specific version of Linux that has like a certain libraries and probably yeah. it want to be small containers to run only required stuff because storage might be expensive or network bandwidth to moving these images back and forth would be expensive. Yeah. And this is where we're going into the interesting situation where, you know, we still have a container to have a Linux, but on top yeah. of Linux, we still need to layer this JRE Java. And, yeah. yeah. And it's not cheap. I mean, don't get me wrong. Java is still amazingly fast at runtime. Uh, and, uh, you know, the memory footprint is a lot more compared to some other languages, but it's not as bad as some other languages still. So if you're doing, if you're comparing against C or Go or Rust, then yeah, of course, your your C or Go or Rust program is going to have a much smaller memory footprint. But, you know, try comparing it against Node or, or Python or something. You'll find those things take up a lot of RAM too. So if you're, if you're not trying to like eke out all that extra RAM, then maybe you don't care, right? If you're not doing Lambda, yeah. maybe you don't care. There's a lot of people who are just, just, just happy with uh, the existing JRE state of affairs. And that's great because, that, you know, the JRE, Java, the runtime, is it gets better and better for free every six months, you know? It's like Moore's Law still exists for Java developers somehow, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it gets so good. I mean, if you take a, a, an application 
written today and and started up on different JREs, you'll see it's just you know it's just a, a night and day difference. I can shave almost a whole second. Yeah, one of the examples that I like I like to bring uh, during the maybe a couple of years ago during the world when we were in transition to java 8 java 11 and make yeah. the java more container friendly yeah and uh like understand that java can understand now that it runs containers and it can absolutely understand that all this uh the limits that containers inform and will not yeah. just like start you know grabbing out and saying oh, i'm dying because there's not enough resources right. or whatnot or like the information that i get from my telemetry is not equal to reality so right. in this case, it will try to figure out, like, do I have enough memory to start this? I don't, uh, so I will fall. Um, yeah. Another thing that you said, like something that you're getting for free, the things around security, for example, and how TLS and support of the, um, the better uh, the version of uh, TLS and improving the encryption uh, comes for free. So yeah. the people who were using the tools like, I don't know, like Kafka, for, again, Kafka, for example, yeah. and they use uh, uh, TLS and SSL there, by upgrading to new versions of Java, they got these improvements for free. For free. And, and so, yeah, thank you, Java team. Thank you, Oracle. I, you know, I know you and I are both very grateful and appreciative. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of people that have, I mean, I think it's still the number two or number one largest community out there, right? Uh, a lot of people who have uh, good jobs that put food on the table because Oracle does this amazing thing and they release it for us for free uh, and open source even. even. It's even crazier. It's, uh, so it's wonderful. That said, uh, there are still some use cases, like we say, that might be better served by having native binaries, right? Uh, in particular, production. Or so, serverless, or serverless. Serverless is a huge use case there, right? Yep. Uh, or, or if you're at scale. So we, people are keen on using GraalVM. And so a couple of years ago, back in, in, in the, well, I guess it's more than that now, almost three years ago, at the end of 2019, I would say, uh, we started working on uh, what, we, what could we do to make Spring huge ecosystem work well in a GraalVM native image context. And by the way, from here on down, if I say GraalVM, just assume I'm talking about native images and not the JRE with the hotspot replacement. The question was, what can we do to make it work well in a native image context, a GraalVM context? This is only a question because GraalVM native images don't just work. They're not automatic. The problem, and I say this with air quotes here, the problem here uh, is that Java applications can do all sorts of amazing things uh, that GraalVM native images just can't yet, right? So for example, in a Java application, it's possible to type out the definition of a class file in a Java lang string. You know, you have a variable Java lang string equals quote, 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 class, my type, curly bracket, curly bracket, quote, 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 semicolon, right? You have literally a class definition in a string. You can take that string, compile it into a doc class file on the disk, load that class file into the class loader, reflectively create a new instance with class.forname and then create the new, you know, call the new constructor passing in the arguments. You can then invoke methods on that class. You can then serialize that class if you want, if it implements serializable. Uh, and you can then write that uh, class to disk, or you can create uh, an invocation handler, a Java proxy using that type that you just created, um, all from that string that you started with. So you can do all of that without ever having a concrete type. You're dealing with Java Lang object the entire time, right? There's no concrete type to which you can cast that resulting thing. And this is all happening after the application has started up. So the problem here is that Java is a very dynamic language. Sometimes we like to complain and say it feels like an old language, uh, but it's really very dynamic, just like Python and JavaScript and Ruby and all that. You can do eval, you know, E-V-A-L, 
very easily in Java. It's not as easy as EVAL, but I just described things that you can all totally do within a Java program while it's running after it's been compiled and started. And because of that, the GraalVM approach, the GraalVM native image compiler, what it does is it looks at the code at compile time and tries to figure out what types are reachable. That is to say, what types it knows are being used by something else, but it can only see the types that are reachable reachable at, at compile time, which means that all this other stuff that we're doing at runtime, like the reflection and proxies and serialization and loading resources from jars and uh, uh, you know all this stuff, it doesn't know about it. It doesn't understand it. And this is a big problem because so much of the Java ecosystem needs this stuff. It works on this stuff. It's what makes Java so dynamic and powerful, right? Yep, it's a reason exactly. this runtime is one of the beautiful things about Java. Uh, and so the GraalVM team, they're very pragmatic. They said, okay, fine. If you give us some config files that tell us when you're going to create proxies, when you're going to create ref do reflection, when you're going to do all these things, we will make it seem like it works. We'll, basically, they build in a little shim into the heap of the native image uh, so that when you say Java language, you know, when you say uh, give me a dot class file and you, and you call get declared methods, it doesn't just return null, right? It's a pre-computed sort of reflection API that only works for the types that you tell GraalVim about. If there's a way, if there's a way, then there's definitely a will, right? So now that there's a way, mm -hmm. what we did was we built Spring Native. Spring Native is a compiler framework. Uh, it's a framework that runs at compile time. It knows about all the patterns that typical Spring applications uh, follow, and it knows about and all the, the things that you just described, all the things yeah. around the uh, reflection and how dependency injection works in the runtime. That's yep. all this kind of like a nice, neat tricks. Yep. Um, needs to be documented somewhere, like uh, in order to, to compiler to understand. Right, and so we don't want you to have to write thousands of lines of JSON config files to tell it about every little place. Yeah, that's part one. Is we we can make existing standard old Spring apps work on uh, GraalVM using Spring Native, and that's been possible for more than a year now. What just happened recently, and to which you just alluded uh, just like a few minutes ago, is we released Spring Native zero point eleven. Uh, which includes a new AOT engine, We've, uh, an, an enhanced AOT engine. We already had the AOT engine uh, six months, a year ago, but this new part is very, very powerful. This new part is we actually take your Java configuration classes, you know, your classes annotated with at configuration, and we transpile it into functional configuration. So now uh, that whole discussion of which types are reachable at runtime, well, we don't have to provide the configuration. We don't have to provide configuration so that Spring can reflect on these Java configuration classes because there are no configuration classes anymore at compile time, right? We turn it all into functional uh, config, which is to say we programmatically register beans in the application context for you. Uh, and that's all reachable. That code is all, you know, you can command click your way all the way through the graph and see what is happening where. Uh, and because of that, the compiled binary starts up, you know, it takes much, even less uh, RAM. It takes up much less time to start up. Uh, it's just amazing, right? And the compile time itself has gone down from, let's say, about 10 minutes uh, in early 2020 uh, to about a minute and a half now, or or maybe even a minute, depending on what you're doing, right? Uh, I've had yeah. builds that take 50 seconds. Uh, so can I show you some of that? Yeah, so I think this is the good reminder for our listeners. If you're listening to us using your audio technologies, your podcatchers, or just listening to audio, this is the good chance that you go and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you will see all the demos. Great. Josh, do you have any like final thoughts or maybe like some of the uh, resources that you want to share with our users, where, what they need to check out or uh, something if they want to 
learn a little bit more or something just like inspirational that you want to share? Uh, yeah, spring.io for such blog and uh, spring.io for such guides. You can find me on the internet, obviously, at Starbucks Man on Twitter. And thank you so much, Victor, for everything you do. I'm, I, I wish we could have done this together in person like we've done in so many other countries and so many other places and so many other times. Uh, we definitely will because I believe there is some of the interesting topics that we want to discuss about the, the microservices as well. So uh, I think it's one of the uh, episodes where we start and in future, I hope I will see you more and more. Um, and um, that was uh, today's episode of uh, Concast where I have uh, Josh along as Spring Developer Advocate at VMware showing some exciting news from the Spring project and uh, introduction to uh, Spring Native. I hope uh, you were excited and entertained same way as I did. I would like to say huge thanks to Josh for uh, being on the show. Thank you. And we will see you on the next time. My name is Viktor Gamov, and as always, have a nice day. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast using your favorite application so you don't miss a new episode. Don't forget to drop us a comment if you have any questions for today's guests or if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover in the future. For more content from today's guests, you can join us on YouTube to see demo segment from this episode of Concast. We'll see you next time.